Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. Across the country, kids are either back in class or about to return. Parents and people who work in schools want to know how safe that is or could be. So this week on The Dose, we're asking, how can we protect kids in school against Omicron? Hi, Fatima. Welcome back to The Dose. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me back. So, uh, you know, of all the questions you've been answering, and I know you're answering lots of questions from parents, how many of them have to do with getting back to school safely? Oh, I would say last week it was pretty much all of them. Uh, a lot of them wanted to know really what to do, what masks to wear, all sorts of questions. And really, actually, a lot of qu- parents were even asking, should I send my child back to school? So we're going to dig in in just a moment, but before we do, can I just ask you to give us a hi, my name is, tell us what you do and where you do it, just ad lib. So my name is Fatima Kakar. I'm a pediatric infectious diseases physician at St. Justine Hospital in Montreal. I'm a clinician researcher, so I spend half my time taking care of kids with infectious diseases and the other half researching infectious diseases in children. Okay, let's get to it. I want to ask a big question right out of the gate. What do we know so far about how much Omicron is being passed from child to child in schools? Now, I don't think we're going to have much of that information in Canada, but what do we know from around the world? This is a great question because a lot of the data that we have is pre-Omicron. So I would say about 95% of the studies that showed that schools aren't causes of transmission and sources of transmission were from the initial variant. And it's because it just takes so much time to get this data together and publish it. So early on, schools were not a source of transmission. Virus came into the school from either a teacher or another adult, and then it spread. But it was not children that were spreading it amongst themselves. With Omicron, we only have a few weeks worth of experience. We don't have data to show how much schools are a source of spread. However, anecdotally, I can honestly say that yes, there was spread in schools and daycare simply because it's so much more transmissible than the other variants. So anecdotally, uh, the week before the holidays, there were a lot of children who got COVID and passed COVID because of spread through schools. But this is just anecdotal evidence. and We don't have good data yet to show the difference between Omicron and the other variants in terms of school spread. And where was that anecdotal data gathered. Was that in Quebec? Was that in in other parts of Canada? This is just our clinical experience. So for example, I was covering the COVID unit the the week of uh, December 17th. And I would say half my patients contracted COVID in school, the other half contracted COVID from their parents. And this is anecdotal experience that my colleagues have had over the holidays. So we saw a large surge in COVID cases um, right before the holidays, during the holidays, and we're hopefully at the tail end of it now, but that's what we were seeing. And so there was transmission going on in schools prior to the holiday break. And it's interesting, and I want to underscore this point, because in the earlier, with the earlier variants of COVID, particularly in the first and second wave, there wasn't much transmission taking place in school, was there? 
No. And again, because we had really good measures, there was masking and the virus was less transmissible. So I think it was a combination of two things. It was the fact that, to be honest, we became a little bit lax insofar as our measures uh, by the end of November when we'd assumed that you know things were at the tail end. And this included measures at school. There was not a strict mask wearing, not a strict distancing. Add that to Omicron, which came about and took people by surprise, that mix of being less rigid on our measures and having this incredibly contagious virus at the same time was what I think contributed to school spread prior to the holidays. But the other point is that if we're lax about infection control procedures in schools right now, we could be in for a lot of transmission in school when it comes to Omicron. Yes, we could. And I think what's important to realize, though, is that the measures we had a year and a half ago worked. So having masking, having distancing, having cohorting, really Omicron spreads through close contact. And so people, for example, in the same household do have a high risk of interfamily transmission. But it's not necessarily the case in schools when we have distancing, we have masking, um, and when we can improve ventilation. So There can be measures in school, and I think what happened end of November is that there was a loosening of these measures on on, at all levels um, that came at the worst possible time with Omicron. We're going to talk about those measures, those infection control measures in just a moment. But before we do, I want to cover a point that has certainly been on my mind. We've been saying that COVID is less serious in children and that Omicron is not as severe as other variants. How concerned are you about the uptick in kids' hospitalizations that we've seen uh, thus far when it comes to Omicron? This is a really important point because, yes, we have seen an uptake in hospitalizations here in Canada and in the U.S., and, but it's important to realize that this reflects just a small proportion of all the kids who've gotten Omicron these last few weeks. So hospitalizations in children are under 2%, so less than 2 in 100 with COVID will be hospitalized. And when we look at the causes of hospitalization, about 40% of them are not due to COVID. So we're screening all admissions, and they're being found positive if they've come in for a broken arm or a head trauma. And of those who are admitted for COVID, and then this time with Omicron, they are generally very short, very mild hospitalizations for symptomatic care. So we have not seen Omicron that is more severe than any of the other variants. What's interesting with Omicron, however, is that it is more respiratory. So before it was more fever, gastrointestinal symptoms, nonspecific symptoms. And now children are coming in with complications of the common cold. So congestion, some upper airway issues, but not more severe. So it's really just the portrait that's changed, the numbers that changed, but not the severity. How well do pediatric vaccines protect kids against Omicron? So we don't have that data yet. Uh, We have great data, though, and this was just published in the last two weeks that shows pediatric vaccines protect over 90% against severe infection and really importantly against that post-COVID complication called MISI, the multisystem inflammatory syndrome. And there have been two good studies, one out of France, one in the U.S., that shows over 95% protection against this post-COVID syndrome. And in the U.S. studies, over 90% protection against severe hospitalization. So this is pre-Omicron, but I don't have any reason to believe that the severity outcomes will be any different with Omicron, which is what we're extrapolating from our experience with adults. Adults may get Omicron, but it won't be as severe if they are vaccinated. 
What do we know about booster shots for 12 to 17 year olds? Great question. And to be honest, we don't know very much. Uh, And I say this because it's recently been approved by the CDC uh, following the FDA's emergency authorization for this group. But we don't actually have any data to really show a waning of the immune response in this group. And it's important to remember that 12 to 18 year olds have a much more robust immune system than adults. So that decision was made basically extrapolating adult data but we don't see that same level of drop in antibody titers in those kids. So I think it was it was a move that they, they did because they have the doses. They said it's probably safe, but it's not something that's data-driven. So for now, when people are asking me about boosters in 12 to 18-year-olds, I'm very confident that a 12 to 18-year-old has their two doses. They are protected against severe disease and miss C, that multisystem inflammatory syndrome. Well, we're just plowing through lots of uh, questions, and and here's another one. Some kids have already had COVID-19. How much does that affect when kids should get their first and second doses of the vaccine? Yeah, a lot of kids have had COVID in these last few weeks. They should still get their vaccine, but I would wait a minimum interval of eight weeks. Um, Just because we want to minimize the risk of having a side effect from the vaccine, we know that their initial antibody response to the infection is very high. Um, It's two to three times what adults have had after natural infection. And so in order to minimize the risk of an adverse reaction immediately to the vaccine and really to optimize the duration of their antibody response, a minimum of eight weeks uh, before they get their vaccine first or second dose. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about vaccines and, of course, kids under the age of five can't yet be vaccinated. We hope that that we'll be hearing something about that in the near future. What should schools be doing to keep that age group from getting and transmitting Omicron? Yeah, and and unfortunately, it's going to be a few more weeks before we have a vaccine for the under five. But there's definitely measures that both parents and schools, you know, should be proactive about. The first and most important one is to try to get your hands on those rapid tests. And I know it's easy for me to say, but really, I I really hope that daycares and um, childcare settings are prioritized and that at the very first sign of cold, that children are tested for COVID. So we were waiting for multiple symptoms before. You used to have two or more symptoms plus fever. But now it's really looking like a common cold. So at the first signs of symptoms to test, and if not possible to test, to to isolate until you can get your hands on a test. The other important measures is really to actually have everyone around those under fives well protected, because the danger is not so much to those children, but everybody in their entourage. So their parents, their grandparents, their teachers, their educators. So everyone who has in their life an under five child, I really hope they have their booster shots because that's going to ensure that that virus is not transmitted to them and doesn't cause any significant effects to them. Between today's wellness fads and news about tomorrow's medical breakthroughs, it's hard to know what health information actually applies to you. Luckily, there's a podcast that breaks through the noise, TED Health from the TED Audio Collective. Join host Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter as she introduces you to leading health experts that break down the questions you didn't know you had. Will eating a plant-based diet make you healthier? How does your neighborhood impact your health? How will medical treatments change in the future? Learn all this and more on TED Health. Find TED Health wherever you get your podcasts. You mentioned the importance of uh, rapid testing. 
What's the ideal time to begin testing? You know, keeping in mind that that wherever in most parts of the country right now, it's hard to get an ample supply of rapid tests. Yeah, it's tough because it's true that the test performs better the further along you are with your symptoms. So usually day two, three is when it has the strongest positivity. But at the same time, we don't want kids being out and about in daycare if they are positive. So I think if you have the luxury of waiting 24 hours, keeping your child at home and monitoring for those symptoms, and if they completely disappear, that's different. But if you have the luxury of waiting for 48 hours, that would be ideal. But at a minimum, I think we will have more than enough rapid tests available in these next few weeks. I think at the minimum sign of a a true cold-like symptom in your child, they should be tested. We've been talking about kids under five who, of course, can't be vaccinated. Are there any additional pieces of advice for kids who are immunocompromised? So two groups, I think, are really important, uh, immunocompromised and newborns who also can't be vaccinated. Um, newborns are this especially important group where, you know, you really have to protect them. And the best way to protect them is vaccination during pregnancy. And even if women don't want the vaccine during pregnancy, immediately postpartum, because there is a benefit through breastfeeding. Immunocompromised children. So this is important because it's really reassuring that in spite of the fact that we've had a lot of immunocompromised kids hospitalized um, and testing positive for COVID, disease has not been absolutely severe in them. And it's potentially because they don't mount that immune response that really creates those COVID lungs. However, we're in a new era where you actually have potential treatments to prevent uh, any complications from the disease. So if a child is especially high risk, so immunocompromised or multiple medical comorbidities, we do recommend that if they do test positive for COVID, they reach out to their primary or their specialist because at many of our Canadian centres, we have uh, treatments available that if we think uh, the child might benefit from, we could give, but should be done early on in their COVID illness. Okay. Wow. Uh, lots of things to think about. Um, here's another question. If, if a child tests positive for COVID-19 or, and I'm assuming at this point that it's Omicron, uh, or is symptomatic, how long should they be kept at home? So at a minimum, minimum, it's five days, but it's really five to 10 days. And those rules have changed so much in these last few weeks. And I know they're confusing for a lot of parents, but at a minimum, it's five days if they're asymptomatic or five days from the time their symptoms have improved. And that's if they've been vaccinated as well and they have mild infection. If they haven't been vaccinated and they have COVID, they should still isolate, ideally for 10 days. And if they have ongoing symptoms, it can go up to 10 days. So that timeline is five to 10 days. The shortest interval possible is five days if they're asymptomatic. But if they're continuing to have symptoms, it's really 10 days. And after those first five days, if that's the shortest interval used, you still have to be careful for those next five days. So in theory, the child can go back to school. They can go back to their activities. But wearing a mask, maintaining distance. And I would just counsel a family that if they are using that five-day window, that they still consider those next five days a period where somebody in that family could still be contagious. And so you don't go to parties and birthdays and you try to avoid high-risk individuals. And so, you know, you go about your essential life activities, but still consider that, you know, up to a third of people may still be contagious after that five-day period. So to, to still 
maintain cautions for that extra five days. Fatima, you you briefly touched on masks. I want to spend a little bit more time talking about them in some detail. And that's because we're now advising adults to wear N95 or KN95 masks, depending on, on what they're able to obtain. So what should kids be wearing? I realize that, that you know, the advice will vary with the age, but, but what can you tell us about that? Yeah, th- this is tough for kids because for adults, we're realizing that N95s are better than surgical masks and in higher risk settings, hospital healthcare, that's what we're recommending. But to be honest, for children, I have yet to see properly fitted, uh, uh, approved N95s that a child could really wear throughout the course of a day. And I say this because in hospital, occasionally kids will wear N95s, immunocompromised kids, but never for more than 30 minutes or maximum an hour at a time because these masks are difficult to wear. And the other issue with N95s for kids is they're not tailored to the specific face of the child, which grows dramatically from age three to 13. And so the most important thing is to have a well-fitted mask, ideally a well-fitted surgical two to three ply mask So for those who are looking for the best protection for their child, I would say a two to three ply surgical mask that your child will wear and essentially forget about. And it's pretty impressive to see kids, my my patients coming into clinic, they forget after a while that they're wearing a mask when it's an appropriate mask that they can keep on their face. So I do encourage parents to have a two to three ply surgical mask that their child is able to wear for extended periods and will play with and fidget with. What can parents do to keep their kids safe during times like lunchtime or gym classes when uh, their kids may not be wearing masks? So I think this and important onus is on the schools and the childcare setting, because as much as possible, if they can stagger those periods of time, especially mealtimes, we know that mealtimes are the area at the time of potentially highest risk simply because of that shared close environment with multiple unmasked people at the same time. So ideally to stagger mealtimes and to have distancing during mealtimes. And during the gym environment, really having the largest space available, the most ventilated spaces, wearing masks and really keeping physical distance. I think those measures should be enough to mitigate the the risk in those large environments. Um, But as far as mealtimes, it's really up to the the schools to try and uh, limit the interaction of children during that time. Now, it's really hard with toddlers where, you know, they're always playing with each other. They're always in each other's faces. But um, if that is possible to separate out and to provide guidance on children that they shouldn't be eating their lunch with directly with other children. That's what's going to limit that high time of exposure risk. This is all great advice that you've been providing, but I think people listening to this want to know if you do all those things, if your school helps you do all those things, how much can we reduce the risk of transmission of Omicron uh, at school? I I really think we can. And I I say this because, you know, what happened before the holidays is that we weren't doing all of these things. So I think, you know, with these measures in place and with children vaccinated, right, prior to the the winter break, uh, we had under 50% of under 12s vaccinated, uh, although and the teenagers were, were higher vaccinated, but we're in a very different position now. So I think with the vaccination we have and with these measures in place, we will be able to reduce school transmission. I can't give an exact number because, quite honestly, we don't know. Um, and Omicron has changed the game completely. So we can't apply the data we had from a year and a half ago. But I think if we extrapolate just on how things were set up a year and a half ago, and we look at um, 
where we are with vaccinations, I think we can be optimistic that we're not going to have significant school school spread, but I can't give a precise number. And finally, what's the single biggest piece of advice that you have for parents that that you want them to walk away with uh, after listening to this conversation? I do want them to consider vaccination if they haven't yet vaccinated their child. And I say this because, again, the under 12s, we're we're hovering above 50%, but we're still not in that 90% range. And it's really important because I think two things have changed since those vaccines were first approved. We have a lot more safety data on millions, over 8 million doses that were given to American children without any adverse effects from the second doses. And now we have surveillance data that shows that having those vaccines prevents against severe disease and prevents that multi-system inflammatory syndrome. So I think putting those three things together, I would strongly urge any parents who haven't yet vaccinated their child to vaccinate their child and to allow their child to go back to school, which is really essential for their overall health, their well-being, and their development. So the two messages really, I encourage people to send their children back to school and to send them back to school vaccinated. Dr. Fatima Kakara, that was fantastic. You answered so many questions, and hopefully you've brought information and reassurance to, to parents right across the country. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you, Brian. That's Dr. Fatima Kakar, infectious diseases pediatrician at St. Justine Hospital in Montreal. And here's your dose of smart advice. Overall, Omicron does not cause much serious illness in kids, but the fact it's more transmissible means we must do everything we can to prevent spread in schools. That means wearing masks all the time except when eating. It's hard to get a proper fit for N95 masks in young children, so stick with the two- to three-ply mask that is so comfortable kids forget they're wearing it. Children should be cohorted, which means keeping them in small groups that spend most of their days together. It's critical to isolate children as soon as possible after getting Omicron or being in close contact with an infected student. Use rapid tests to identify children with COVID. Unvaccinated kids need to be isolated for a full 10 days. Kids who have had two doses of COVID vaccine may end self-isolation after a minimum of five days, only if they've had no symptoms. Everyone else should probably be isolated for a full 10 days. COVID vaccines are the best way to avoid hospitalization and other serious complications from Omicron. So make sure your child gets vaccinated and gets their third dose as soon as they're eligible. Because kids have a much stronger immune response than do adults, doctors recommend that kids wait eight weeks after getting Omicron before getting a COVID vaccine. One way to remember how long to wait is to record the date when your child has a positive rapid test. If you have topics you'd like discussed or questions you'd like answered, tweet me at NightShiftMD, at CBC Podcasts, or at CBC White Coat using the hashtag TheDoseCBC. Our email address is thedose at cbc.ca. You can find The Dose wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, please rate us five stars so more people can find us. This edition of The Dose was produced by our new producer, Stephanie Dubois. Welcome aboard. Technical support was by Gary Francis. Our senior producer is Colleen Ross. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice, see your health care provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.